For more information about our teaching and preaching ministry, you can find us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The following sermon has been brought to you by Cornerstone Orlando, making disciples for the glory of God. The title of our sermon this morning is Love Without Hypocrisy. This is part three, Romans chapter 12, verses nine through 13. So welcome back now to our ongoing study of Paul's epistle to the church at Rome, where in consideration now of the mercies of God bestowed upon believers through faith alone in Christ alone, Paul now calls Christians to a a lifetime of entire consecration in the worship and service of God. That's what Paul is calling us to. A lifetime of entire consecration. The primary context of that service of worship, the primary context of that consecration is the church of the living God. And it's in the context of the church now that Paul begins to explain the practical implications of living that kind of consecrated Christian life. This is the way that we are to do it. Right? Having exhorted us to a sober and realistic assessment of the gifts that have been given to us by God, we are then to fully employ those gifts for the edification of the body. What we have, we've received. God has given it to us. We are to employ those gifts for the building up of the Lord's body, for the edification of the whole. And if we are to exercise those gifts for the edification of the body, we may only do so faithfully in consideration of that great principle that should govern all of our relationships together in the church, namely a sincere and genuine love. Love should be at the center of our relationship together because it is at the center of our relationship with the Lord who loves us and gave himself for us. We are called to love one another here in the text. We are called to love one another with a love that is free from the stain of hypocrisy. As we've described it, as we've attempted or ventured upon a definition of love and what love is, we've said that love is the heart, not just the mind, not just the will. Love is the heart focused upon its object with affectionate warmth and delight. It's not just a love of the mind, so to speak, or a love of the intellect or a love of the will. It is a love that is affectionate, a love that is warm. It's a love of delight. Love is the heart focused upon its object with affectionate warmth and delight such that love bears fruit. Such that it bears fruit in the way that we think and speak and act. We are to love, think, speak, and act with enduring commitment and self-sacrificing devotion to one another's personal Biblical and spiritual good. We're to think, speak, and act with enduring commitment and self-sacrificing devotion to another person's biblical and spiritual good. So love is not merely in word or in tongue. Love is to be in deed and in truth. Uh, It's a love that acts. It's a love that works. It's a love that labors on behalf of another. Paul then follows describing love as without hypocrisy. He follows that with a series of exhortations that then define the nature and character of, the, of a sincere and genuine love. The nature of that love with, which, which we are to have for one another. And those exhortations are moral or ethical in their character. A sincere love that is free from the stain of hypocrisy is a love that conforms to the moral and ethical character of the law of God. That's Romans 13, verse 8. He who loves another 
has fulfilled the law. You can't say I love you and then sin against one another. Love fulfills the law, amen? Therefore, love then that is free from the stain of hypocrisy is a love that abhors what is evil and clings to what is good. The character or quality of your love isn't determined by the fervency of your feelings. First and foremost, it's not determined by the fervency of your feelings. It's not based simply on what you know. Love is defined and governed by the word of God. And it's the word of God that reveals the one who is himself love. We're to love as he loved us. Now we are to love one another with a love that is consistent with that love which has been shed abroad in our hearts by the gospel, by the, by the spirit of God in accord with the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're to love by the mercies of God. We're to love in consideration of what Jesus Christ has done for us. We're to love one another as he has loved us. So not only is the nature of sincere love then fundamentally moral in its character, not only does it adhere to the character of the law, the quality, Paul says, of that love is uniquely familial. It's to be kindly affectionate in verse 10. And that word for kindly affectionate, referring to the natural love that characterizes the closest of all earthly relationships, right? The closest of those relationships that we experience here in our physical relationships with one another. The love between a husband and a wife or the love between a mother and a child. That's that word kindly affectionate. Uh, it describes the kind of love that we're to have for one another in the body of Christ. And Paul says it is to be a brotherly love, Adelphia. It's to be um, a love that is not mandated by circumstance, but rather a love that has in it a natural affection, like the natural affection that members of a family might have for one another. It's to be a brotherly love. It's that kind of love, that kindly affectionate love, that brotherly love that endures the heat of adversity. It stands the test of time. It's a love that readily forgives. It's the kind of love that thinks, speaks, and acts with enduring commitment and self-sacrificing devotion or commitment to another person's, to another person's biblical and spiritual good. Now, the words that convey that kind of love or that describe that kind of love, describe it as natural it's natural among the members of a family. It should be natural among those who are a part of the household of God. It will be natural among those who have been born again of God's spirit. This kind of love is a fruit of the spirit. But as much as it is natural among the members of a household or the members of a family, this kind of love is, this exhortation to love suggests responsibility. Paul is thinking here also practically. And although a familial or a brotherly love will occur naturally among the members of the body, that kind of familial or brotherly love should manifest itself more and more practically as we grow in the faith and serve in the body. As we live and serve amongst one another, as we understand more and more and embrace through faith the love that Jesus Christ has for us, the more and more we're going to abound in this familial brotherly love for one another. It's a grace that we are to, Paul exhorts us to, abound in more and more. We have many examples in scripture that compel us to that very uh, example, to a greater love for one another. Now, all of this means, all of this explains what it means to love without hypocrisy. When we say, I love you, it is to be a love without hypocrisy. When we say, I love you, it's to be a love that, is, that could be described by these verses. 
It's a love that is not merely in word or in tongue. It's a love that is in deed and in truth. It's a love that labors. It's a love that works, that pursues, a love that forgives. It's a love that suffers along and is kind. It's a love that is not prideful or puffed up. It doesn't parade itself. It's not rude. It does not seek its own. It's not provoked. It's not quick to take offense. It's not entitled. It thinks no evil. It's a love that bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. It's a love that bears the character and quality of Christ's love for his own. It's a love that looks like his love for us. Now, in the original language, these exhortations that follow Paul's charge to love without hypocrisy, these exhortations that follow are all participles. They're I-N-G, they're verbals, I-N-G words. And these participles flesh out or apply the original statement. Let me give you an example of what that means. The Great Commission is to make disciples. Right? The verb there, make disciples. You do that by obeying three participles in the text, by going, by baptizing, and by teaching. Right? You make disciples by going, baptizing, and teaching. Likewise, in Romans chapter 12, verse 9, we have a statement, love without hypocrisy. Love without hypocrisy. You do that by obeying the participles that follow. Abhorring evil. Clinging to good. In verse 10, being kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. Now notice further, if you think about it that way, we're obeying these exhortations, these participles that follow. In explaining and in applying the principle of a sincere love, a love that is free from the stain of hypocrisy, Paul employs the next in a series of participles to help us do that. He does that in verse 10. The next is in honor, giving preference to one another. In honor, giving preference to one another. This is another way in verse 10, this is another way in which sincere love is going to manifest itself. It's another way in which sincere love will demonstrate itself. You will know it by its fruits. And here is a fruit in honor, giving preference to one another. A sincere love will, in honor, prefer another more highly than himself or before himself. Now, the meaning of the phrase appears obvious, right? Love, we know, does not seek its own. Love is not conceited. Love is not selfish. Love is not self-absorbed. Love esteems others more highly than itself. It gives preference to another. That's what love does. It gives preference. It defers to another. All of these descriptors that we could use. Now, Paul says something very similar in other texts. If you think about Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Paul says there, verse 3, for example, let nothing be done, let nothing, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, in humility, let each esteem others better than himself. It's pretty clear, isn't it? Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. We're exhorted to love in that way, with humility, not seeking only our own interests. We're here to care for our own soul, amen? But not in only looking out for ourselves, but in looking for, out for others to esteem them better than ourselves. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. In Philippians chapter two, verse three, Paul speaks against the conceit, against the selfish ambition by which we assert ourselves over or above another person. That's what selfish ambition, that's what conceit does. 
That's what envy does. It asserts yourself over or above another person. So love, sincere love, genuine love, doesn't seek its own. It doesn't seek its own interests over or above the interests of another. That kind of love requires humility. It exudes humility. It requires self-sacrifice. Why? Because it seeks another's interests before its own. It requires self-denial. Why? Because it seeks the interests of another more highly than its own interests. A sincere love requires deference. It requires that we defer to one another. And in the church, considering our relationships together, we're to have a sincere love for one another that defers to one another. It's a mutual deference. A sincere love will set aside its own preferences in favor of another. No, 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 you do what you want. No, no, you do what you want. No, 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 I want you to do what you want. No, 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 I want you to have your, right? We're thinking about it in that way. Sounds funny, but that in essence is what is being referred to. It's a mutual deference that, that rejoices in or delights in the preferences of another. It esteems another more highly than himself, than itself. The language that Paul uses here Although that's what he's talking about in Romans chapter 12, verse 10. The language that Paul uses here is also unique. And it's unique in this sense. Listen to the text, verse 10. In honor, giving preference to one another. It's not just as Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 says, um, in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. But here in verse 10, in honor, giving preference to one another. Lloyd-Jones describes the word for honor in this way. He says, the Greek, word referenced, uh, re- the Greek word referred to the price that was fixed for an object after you had gone to the trouble of having it evaluated. You have it evaluated, they affix a price or a value to the object. He says, think of something in your possession, a watch perhaps. You decide to examine it, and as a result of your examination, you assess its value, and you put a good price on it. So think about something valuable that you have, Think about examining that object and putting a value on it, affixing a price to it. What would it be worth in your estimation? Paul takes that word and applies it to our relationships in the church. Think about that for a moment. What Paul is essentially saying is that we take stock, if you will, of one another and one another's gifts and graces, uh, one another in terms of uh, the value that we have in the body of Christ, and we affix, if you will, or we estimate a value, ascribe a value to others in the the body of Christ. It refers to what we think of one another, that word, right? Paul is using it to refer to how we think about one another. It refers to our estimation of another person's value, another person's worth, another person's, our estimation of their gifts, our assessment of their value to the body, and it conveys a sense of reverence, a, a, a sense of respect, a sense of worth. And we're to look at one another, brothers and sisters, with an inestimably high value. We're to esteem one another highly. We are exceedingly, we should be we should see one another with great value in our own eyes. We should esteem one another with more honor, with more value than ourselves. That perspective, if you think about it in that way, the value that you ascribe to your brothers and sisters in the church will affect, impact, determine how it is that you treat them and interact with them. 
If you ascribe great value to your brothers and sisters in the church, that's going to determine, it's going to affect, impact how you interact with them, how you treat them. Right? Here, the word translated giving preference in honor, in value, in ascribing value, giving preference to one another. Giving preference literally, literally refers to going ahead or going before. Moving ahead, in other words, it, it conveys a sense of eagerness, a sense of diligence, not lagging behind, but going ahead. Outdoing one another seems to be a good way to translate that. That's the way the ESV translates that text. Outdoing one another seems to be the sense. The sense here in verse 10 would be that members of our church, members of our church family, our body, should eagerly seek to outdoing to outdo one another in ascribing value, in ascribing honor for one another rather than for ourselves. Truly appreciating one another, appreciating the grace of God at work in that person, appreciating their gifts, appreciating the grace that has been poured out on them by God and their place in the body, their worth to the body, their value in the body. And we should take the lead in showing that kind of respect, that kind of honor, that kind of deference. And that's essentially what Paul is saying in verse 10. Don't be sluggardly, don't lag behind, don't be lazy in ascribing honor and Outdo one another. Go ahead of one another. Be first, if you will, in expressing that honor, that respect, that love for one another in the body. Similar to the way in which we are to arrive at a sober-minded self-assessment of our own gifts in verse 3, we are here in verse 10 to arrive at a heartfelt appreciation, right? a whole-souled value for the gifts and graces given to others in the church, we're to view our brothers and sisters with that kind of wholehearted, whole-souled love and then run to esteem them for their work's sake in the body, for their value to the body. Not only can the, the eye not say to the hand, I have no need of you, or the foot say to the arm, I have no need of you. The foot should be saying to the arm, I value you highly. I esteem you more highly than myself, right? We should run to esteem one another and value one another in the body. We should run to esteem them for their work's sake. You can see how far removed that is, right, from tearing down. In honor, giving preference to one another, not tearing them down. Not, that is the opposite of a critical spirit, right? That is the opposite of a judgmental spirit, a critical heart, a legal temper. It's the opposite of those things. It's the opposite of tearing down. It is building up. It is building up. It is speaking that which is necessary for our mutual edification, is exactly that kind of tearing down, that kind of critical spirit, that kind of judgmental attitude that James warns us against, that kind of attitude is exactly the opposite, the opposite of this admonition in Romans chapter 12, verse 10, in honor, giving preference to one another. Now, this connects well, if you think about that, it connects well with what Paul then goes on to say in verse 11, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. We are to rush ahead of one another, if you will. We're to seek to outdo one another in ascribing value to our brothers and sisters and their place in the body, ascribing value to them, preferring them, esteeming them more highly than ourselves, and in doing that, in loving without hypocrisy, in loving with a sincere and genuine love, in that way, we are not to lag behind in our diligence, 
but rather we are to be fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Now these next three participles, verse 11, these verbals, they convey a fervency and earnestness to the sincere love that we are to demonstrate toward one another. Again, it suggests action, doesn't it? It implies responsibility. It's something that we can pursue. It's something that we are to do. We're to not lag in diligence. We are to be fervent in spirit. We are serving the Lord. First, consider with me, not lagging or lazy in your pursuit of this goal of sincere love. A sincere love is not lazy or lukewarm. A sincere love, a genuine love, is not sluggardly. The negative of this admonition is found in Galatians chapter 6, verse 9. If you just flip a few pages to the right, Galatians 6, Galatians chapter 6, verse 9. Where Paul says there, let us not grow weary while doing good. Right, this love is a good work. We're to pursue this love. We're not to grow weary in that pursuit. We're not to lag in our diligence concerning that pursuit. For, verse nine, in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. We cannot grow lazy or slothful or sluggardly or weary in well-doing. We must remain fervent. We must remain earnest in spirit. Our love for one another should be enthusiastic. Verse 10, therefore, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith especially to those with whom we share brotherly affection in the household of God, do you see? A brotherly responsibility. So not lagging or slothful in our diligence, but pressing ahead, pushing forward, not growing weary in doing good, right? But looking forward to the fruit of the harvest, so to speak. As we have opportunity, and we're to not just have it, we're to take it. As we have opportunity, as we take opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. So first, not lagging or lazy in our pursuit of this goal of sincere love. Second, Paul says in verse 11, we must be fervent in spirit. Literally there, it means uh, boiling over. It refers to bubbling water. Uh, boiling over, enthusiastic in your spirit. He's speaking there of your own spirit, but that kind of fervency, that kind of uh, enthusiasm in our own spirit is impossible apart from the spirit of God. Right? That kind of enthusiasm, that kind of Boiling over, that kind of fervousness, that, that kind of earnestness is a fruit of the Spirit also. It's a fruit of the Spirit's work in the heart and mind of a believer. We are to be fervent in spirit. So in that sense, it's our own spirit that's being referred to in verse 11, but our own spirit is quickened by his spirit, isn't it? As his spirit applies the truths of God's word to our heart and mind, our own hearts and minds burn within us, don't they? Like those disciples that walked with Jesus on the road to Emmaus. Did not our hearts burn within us? That's a fruit of his quickening spirit at work in us in response to the word of God, in, in response to divine truth. So his spirit works with our spirit, right? His spirit quickens our spirit. You, in other words, you can't produce the fire. You can't produce the fire, but you can fan the flame. And Paul essentially charges us to do that. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul reminds Timothy of the genuineness of his faith. He reminds Timothy, similarly here to Romans chapter 12, he reminds Timothy of the gifts that God has given him. And then he says, therefore, I remind you, Timothy, to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. That's 
prescriptive or descriptive, not prescriptive for the church. We can talk about that another time. The point that Paul's making is, is that Timothy has been given a gift and Timothy is to, by Paul's exhortation, to stir it up. Verse seven, for God has not given us a spirit of, spirit of fear, but a spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. So Timothy is to stir up that gift that has been given because he's not been given a, a spirit of timidity. To borrow language from Paul in Romans chapter 12, verse 10, he's not given us a spirit that lags behind in diligence. He's not given us a sluggardly spirit. He has given us a fervent spirit. He has given us an earnest spirit. So how then do we stir up the gift of God? How do we fan the flame? We can't produce the fire, but we're charged, we're responsible to fan the flame. How do we do it? We supply it with fuel to burn. God has given us the fuel. That's his word. We need to supply our hearts and minds with the raw material, if you will, the, the fuel that the Spirit will employ to stir up our hearts to love and good works. We need to give it fuel to burn. We pray for the Spirit of God to blow across the embers. The Spirit of God is the one who will illumine our understanding. The Spirit of God takes the Word of God, applies the Word of God to our hearts and our minds, and causes it. These things aren't, this is not just, these aren't platitudes. This is, this is how it works, okay? And I don't, I don't mean that pragmatically. But the one who says, I'm gonna love my brothers and sisters, I'm gonna serve the Lord, and then has no interest in his word, you, you have no raw material by which the Spirit of God will apply in your heart and mind to cause you to love him that way. These things are axiomatic. If we're going to love one another, we need the raw material of his word in our hearts, in our minds. We need to know how Jesus Christ has loved us. We need to be taking these things into our innermost being. The Spirit of God applies those things in our hearts and minds and causes us to live for him, causes us to love one another. And we can't love one another the way that we're supposed to without it. Make sense? We can't do it. We need his word. The Spirit of God needs that fuel, if you will, in our hearts and minds. So you're not going to just get it by putting it on your pillow. You've got to take it in. It's not delivered by osmosis. It's not downloaded through some chip, right? Some spiritual chip that you have in your gray matter. You've got to put it in your head. You've got to get it in your heart. And the spirit of God applies it there and causes us. So if brothers and sisters, if we're going to grow in our love for one another, if we're going to love one another in this way, we have got to get the word of God into our hearts and minds. We've got to understand, embrace, allow the Spirit of God to shed abroad the love of God in our hearts, the love that Jesus Christ has had for us in dying as our substitute on the cross. That love needs to permeate every part of who we are, every part of us, our heart, our mind, right? Our spirit needs to be permeated with an understanding of those things. We need to supply it with fuel to burn, you see? And that will cause you, brothers and sisters, by the grace of God, by a work of his spirit, that will cause us to love one another as we are supposed to love one another. If you don't have that in your heart and mind, your love is going to be deficient. Your faith is going to be deficient. Your Christian life is going to be deficient. You are going to be deficient. We need it in our heart and mind, you see? Peter says later that he would stir us up by way of reminder. He would stir us up, stir us up, by what means? By reminding us. Reminding us of what? Reminding us of the gospel. All that Jesus Christ has done for us. All that's been given to us. The grace of God that has been lavished upon us. How is it that we are to present ourselves as living sacrifices to God? We're to present ourselves as living sacrifices to God on the basis 
on the foundation of the mercies of God. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present yourselves a living sacrifice to God, which is holy and acceptable, right? It's on the basis of that exalted truth, those exalted blessings, that exalted grace, it's on the basis of all that Christ has done that we are to then turn and love one another. We've, we've got to grow in our understanding of these things. And if we grow in our understanding of these things, we will grow in our love for one another. So with that in mind, brothers and sisters, it can't be a checkbox kind of reality. You can't simply check the boxes and expect that this kind of love is just going to ooze out of you. We've got to live it. We've got to breathe it. It has to become a part of who we are. Third, first, we're not to be lazy or sluggardly in our love for one another. And when you, as you grow in your understanding of how the Lord Jesus Christ has loved you, you're not going to lag. You're not going to be lazy or sluggardly in your love for others, right? Second, we must be fervent in spirit. Where does that fervency come from? Where does it come from? It's a fruit of the spirit that, that thrives, if you will, on the fuel of God's word in our hearts. Third, we are to love one another in service to the Lord. Not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. To love one another in this way is to serve the Lord Christ. It's to serve him. So then, Colossians chapter 3, verse 23, whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, as to the Lord, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance for you serve the Lord Christ. You serve the Lord Christ. Dr. Murray said that this reminder is the most effective antidote to weariness and incentive to ardor. It's a remedy to weariness and an incentive to fervency, to ardor, to an ardent love. Murray says, when discouragement overtakes the Christian and fainting of spirit as its sequel, it is because the claims of the Lord's servant service have ceased to be uppermost in our thought. I don't think that I'm the only one who's experienced that recently. <laughs> experienced that, really, that reality recently. If you're like me, you've been through the very, same, the very same difficulty. When discouragement overtakes the Christian, what is its sequel, in the words of Dr. Murray? Fainting of spirit. Discouragement can lead to a, a disappointed heart, a discouraged heart will lead to a lagging spirit, uh, a lagging fervency, a lack of earnestness, a lack of diligence, uh, weariness in well-doing. Discouragement leads to that kind of downtrodden, downhearted weariness. And Murray says rightly, it leads to that because in light of that discouragement, right, in light of those circumstances, we become discouraged. We think we, we deserve better. We think we're entitled to something better. So the focus is no longer on the Lord and the Lord's goodness and the Lord's grace. Where's the focus? It's on my own condition, my own circumstances, my own situation, right? Where it shouldn't be. <laughs> and because we're thinking in that way, we become discouraged and we lag in diligence. We, we, we become sluggardly. We lose the motivation, if you will. And Murray says that's because claims of the Lord's service have ceased to be uppermost in our thought. We serve the Lord Christ. 
And if we're serving the Lord Christ in this circumstance or that circumstance or the other circumstance, we serve the Lord Christ. If we serve the Lord Christ under these circumstances, under these conditions or those conditions, we serve the Lord Christ. We serve him and consider all it is that he has done for us. We should be of all people most encouraged, most encouraged and most diligent, most earnest, most fervent despite our circumstances. But we struggle that, don't we? Struggle with that. Hebrews says, when you have grown discouraged in your hearts, in your souls, in your mind, when you've grown discouraged, consider him. Consider him who endured such hostility against himself at the hands of sinners. You think you've suffered hostility at the hands of sinners? Consider him, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. And you press on in diligence, you press on in fervency, you press on in earnestness. We are to, our love for one another is in service of the Lord. That should fuel diligence. That should fuel enthusiasm, fervency to love one another in the way that we've been called to love one another. As much as these exhortations that Paul is giving us, Romans chapter 12 now, 10 and 11, as much as these exhortations suggest or imply a command to be obeyed, they involve a mindset. They involve an attitude of heart, a mindset that must take precedence, in the words of Dr. Murray there, right? They must be uppermost in our thought. They reflect a heart attitude that should take precedence, a heart attitude that should be cultivated, like Paul said to Timothy, fanning the flame, stirring up that gift in him. And notice, it's the mind and the heart and the spirit that is involved in what Paul is saying here. In other words, sincere love cannot simply terminate in the mind with what we know. I know this, I know that, I know the other thing. Check that box, check that box, check that box. That's not the way it works. What we know, brothers and sisters, has to grip our hearts. You have to allow yourself to be moved by these truths. What we know, what we understand, what God has revealed should grip your heart and mind. These are exalted realities. They should grip you. And we should love then with that gripping our hearts and minds. We should pursue this high calling. We should pursue love in this way because in light of the mercies of God that have been poured out on us, because of the love that has been demonstrated toward us in the life and death the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ, God's own son, we should then, with that reality, that exalted theology gripping our hearts, with chapters one through 11 gripping our hearts, we should then long to devote ourselves entirely as living sacrifices in love for and in service to him. And the way that we do that is by loving one another. We should long to do that with diligence, with zeal, with fervency. We should strive to outdo one another in that showing deference rather than serving ourselves, rather than focusing on ourselves, knowing that to love in this way is to serve the Lord Christ himself. That should motivate our love for one another, motivate our service to the church. Now, Paul is a good example of this very attitude. And what I'd like for us to do is take a look at Paul's example and apply Paul's example in our own hearts and minds, right? Apply Paul's example to ourselves. Paul says in Philippians chapter three, we're to follow him as he follows Christ. We're to note those who so walk. We have them for an example. Let's look at Paul's example. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter one. 1 Timothy chapter one. And I want you to notice there first, 
Paul's attitude concerning himself. Paul charges us in Romans chapter 12 not to think too highly of ourselves. Not to think too highly of ourselves. We're to esteem others more highly than ourselves, right? We're not to be prideful. We're not to be conceited. We're not to be self-absorbed, selfish. So notice Paul's attitude about himself. Paul's an apostle, right? Paul has a, a tremendous education. He's been tremendously gifted, tremendously gifted. And yet listen to Paul's own perspective on himself. Verse 12. First Timothy chapter one, verse 12. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me. He didn't do it himself in his own strength. Christ Jesus, our Lord, has enabled him because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although, despite the fact that I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy. That's what it is. Every gift you, everything you have is mercy. Mercy, I, did it, I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord, not his own strength, the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Now I don't think that's hyperbole there. I think Paul is being heart earnest with what he's saying. Paul, said, he goes on to say, however, for this reason I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show all long-suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. In other words, what Paul is saying is this. Paul is saying, God saved me to be an example. And the example is this. If he'll save me, he'll save anyone who comes to Jesus Christ in faith. Why? Because I persecuted the church of God. I was a blasphemer. I was an insolent man, right? I persecuted the church of the living God and God saved me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Saved me through faith, apart from any works of my own. Paul is saying he is a testimony of God's patience, a testimony of God's mercy, a testimony of God's grace as a pattern, as an example for those who would come to him by faith in Jesus Christ to believe on him for everlasting life. Verse 17, now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever, amen. Paul responds in worship. That, that reality has gripped the heart of Paul. Do you see? Paul sees himself as a lowly sinner. Paul sees himself as the chief of sinners. And it's that heart attitude that Paul carries with him into the work. Why does Paul such show, demonstrate such deep concern and deep love for all the churches? In one part, because he sees himself in this way and he sees Jesus Christ as abundantly gracious, as rich in mercy, right? You can hear all of that in how Paul describes his labor for the Lord. This has gripped Paul's heart. Turn with me now to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And let's see how Paul then explains the work that he does. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And look there at verse 9. Verse 9. For I am, Paul says, I am the least of the apostles. That's Paul's hard attitude about himself. He is the chief of sinners. He persecuted the church of God. He did it ignorantly in unbelief. So God was merciful to him. God didn't treat him like 
Amalek and curse him to an eternity uh, apart from him in hell, God showed great mercy and great grace because Paul did it ignorantly in unbelief. But Paul says in verse nine, I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. You see Paul's humble attitude, right? But verse 10, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Entirely by grace, I am what I am. God has made me what I am. I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. But rather, I labored more abundantly than they all. Do you see how Paul's understanding of himself exalts the grace and mercy of God toward him? And in exalting the grace of God uh, toward him in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul then, by the mercies of God, then takes that grace, if you will, and labors more abundantly than they all. Right? It's his own estimation of himself, his own understanding of the grace of God, and then it's his labor in the Lord. He does not lag in diligence. He is fervent in spirit. Why? Because he serves the Lord Christ, right? who has given all to save him. His grace not toward me was not in vain but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. Even when you do all that you can do, Luke 17, you are at most, at best, an unprofitable servant. You see? Verse 11, therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Your ability, if you will, or your willingness to esteem another more highly than yourself, your ability to love as Paul is calling us to love depends much, brother and sister, on how you view yourself. It depends much on how you view yourself. And in the words of Lloyd-Jones again, much harm, great harm has come upon the church because of the way that men and women think of themselves. Loving in such a way as to go ahead of others in ascribing value to others, esteeming others, showing honor to others, depends much on how you view yourself. And that same humility that is exhibited here by the Apostle Paul is the humility with which you should view yourself. And that humility is a prerequisite for the love that Paul is calling us to in Romans chapter 12. It's a necessary component of that kind of love. When we lose sight of who we are, and in connection with that, when we lose sight of the magnitude of the grace and mercy of God in saving us through, through giving us his own son, when we lose sight of who we are and who he is and what he's done, we will lose sight of the love that Paul is calling us to here in Romans chapter 12 and great Harm comes when we lose sight of that kind of love, that kind of self-effacing love, that kind of Christ-exalting love. We lose sight of that love. And it begins, can, can you see that right? It begins with the way that you think. It begins with what you know to be true and what you know to be true revealed by the word of God. It begins with the way that we think, the way that we think taking root in our hearts it's a mindset that must be cultivated, a frame of heart that must, must be cultivated. What you know, the way that you think, leads to an attitude of heart. That attitude of heart involves a spirit-wrought humility with the way that you think about yourself, a spirit-wrought gratitude 
for all that the Lord has done. A spirit-wrought enthusiasm then pours out. That is the raw fuel that is necessary to motivate Christ-like love and Christ-like devoted service. That's what we need. And we do that knowing that we serve the Lord in the work. We serve the Lord Christ. Just like a sincere love, a genuine love, a love that is without hypocrisy, just like that love cannot terminate in the mind with what you know, it cannot simply terminate in the heart with the way that you feel. It cannot terminate simply in the mind or in the heart. It cannot simply terminate in the words that you say. It's not merely going to be expressed in the words that you say. It must be expressed in the things that you do. And it will be expressed with fervency, with diligence, not lagging behind, but with enthusiasm boiling over, as it were, as you race ahead to outdo one another in showing value for one another, esteeming one another in the Lord's body. The Lord did not love us with mere words. So if you are to avoid being lazy in your love for one another, if you are to avoid being sluggardly in your love for one another, if you are to serve with fervency, literally boiling over with enthusiasm, it depends much on your attitude. Depends much on the way that you think about yourself. It depends much on what you know of what Christ has done for you through the gospel. It depends much on your embrace through faith of all that has been done for you by the mercies of God. And the mindset with which you approach your labor in the Lord is fueled by an understanding of those things. You serve the Lord Christ. To love without hypocrisy is to serve the Lord in light of the mercy and grace that has been lavished upon you. To love without hypocrisy is to pursue a sincere love for one another in light of the love that he has demonstrated toward you in giving his own son. It's a love that is conspicuous in its character, its moral and ethical character. It's a love that is conspicuous for its familial, brotherly warmth and affection. It's conspicuous for its diligence, for its fervency, for its enthusiasm, for its zeal. It's conspicuous for what it says about the Lord Jesus Christ. It's conspicuous for what it says about the grace of God that has been poured out on you. Mind, heart, and spirit are all involved. Mind, heart, spirit, body, strength are all involved. Mind, heart, body, spirit, strength, determination, will, Desire, imagination, aspirations, ambition, they're all involved in this kind of love. You cannot coast with this kind of love. You cannot take your ease and think to yourself that I'm loving in this way. This is a high calling, you see? We cannot just simply sit back and say, right, merely or only because I'm here and because I have a love for Jesus Christ that, and because I have these warm feelings for people around here, not everybody around here, but most people around here. You can't say that you're loving the way that Paul is calling us. That's not the, that's not the degree to which he's calling us here. Right? That's, that's really not even one rung up the ladder. We're missing out on the charge because we don't understand what fuels it, what motivates it. Mind, heart, spirit, body, strength, emotions, will, determination, it's all involved. You cannot take your ease 
Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, the love of Christ compels us. The love of Christ compels us by the mercies of God. Paul is charging us to love one another in this way. By the example of the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's done for us through the gospel, we should love one another in this way. The love of Christ compels us. That sincere love, in closing, a love that is without hypocrisy is of great importance to you as a believer. And it's of critical importance to the church, to us as a church corporately. Just as great harm comes upon the church when men and women fail to love in this way, as we've seen. Right? Great harm comes upon the church when this kind of love is absent from the body when we forget or neglect that kind of love, great harm comes upon the church. Great harm comes upon the Christian when they fail to love in these ways. Great harm comes upon our work. John chapter 13, when the Lord is speaking with his disciples in the upper room, the Lord says, a new commandment I give to you, verse 34, that you love one another. The Lord commands them to love one another as he has loved them. As uh, I have loved you, that you also love one another. That's the commandment, verse 35. By this, by this love that you have for one another, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. If you don't love one another in that way, they won't care what you say. Right? It smacks of hypocrisy. If we don't love one another in this way, then our testimony, our witness for the Lord Jesus Christ smacks of hypocrisy. It, it, carries the stench of hypocrisy. Those that have not loved in this way act, play the part of the hypocrite. They put a mask on. They'll know that we are his disciples by the way that we love one another. And we're not, our God is not our belly, but our God is the true and living God of the Bible who demonstrated his love toward us and not sparing his own son, but rather delivered him up for us all. Whatever you say, if it's not if it's not submersed in this kind of love, smacks of hypocrisy. It's this kind of sincere love that should permeate to the very core of our fellowship together as a church. Beyond that, absence of a sincere love for one another is an indication that you personally are abiding in death. If you don't love, if there's no sense of this love, if that love has not been authored in your heart, if that love is not being cultivated in your heart, then John would say, 1 John chapter 3, that you're abiding in death. Listen to John there from verse 10. Into this, the children of God and the children of, devil, of the devil are manifest. Here's how you can tell the difference between those who are children of God and those who are a child of the devil. Here's how you know. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. In other words, there's a character test. There's a moral test. If you're living like the devil that would suggest that you're a child of the devil. If you're living after the example of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're living according to his law, if by the spirit you are fulfilling the righteous requirements of the law, Romans chapter eight, verse four, that's an indication that you are walking by the spirit and not, about, not according to the flesh. That's an indication that you're a child of God. If you're living like the devil, you're a child of the devil. For this, uh, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. What kind of love is John speaking of there in verse 10? He's speaking of the kind of love that Paul is calling us to in Romans chapter 12. This kind of love, a love that is without hypocrisy. 
For this, John says, is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. Do you want to know? Do you want to know that you have passed from death to life? Has that love for the brethren been authored in your heart? He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this, we know love because he laid down his life for us. And so we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Whoever has this world's goods, sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him. How does the love of God abide in that one? My little children, let us not love merely in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this, we know that we are of the truth. And by this, we shall assure our hearts before him. You want to assure your hearts before him that you are a child of God. Love in the way that we're called to love. This kind of love extends to every sphere in which we find ourselves. But of particular concern to the Apostle Paul is the nature of our love for one another in the Lord's church. That's what he's particularly talking about. Abhorring what is evil, clinging to what is good, our love for one another must conform to his law. Don't tell me you love me when you're sinning against me. That carries the stench of hypocrisy. That love is to be kindly affectionate. It is to, have, uh, it is to be brotherly in its character, familial in its character. In other words, our love for one another must convey a natural warmth and delight, kindled by the Spirit, pursued from the heart. We must put off self-conceits, pour contempt on our pride, and go before others in showing deference, showing respect, outdoing one another. Our love cannot languish in laziness. It must be like a boiling pot of fervency and activity. We must love as those who have been bought at an infinitely high price. We must love as those who serve the Lord Jesus Christ. His love should be that love which compels us to love one another. It's by that sincere love that we assure our hearts before him. It's by that sincere love that we will know that we are his disciples. How do you do that? There are manifold ways. And you should wrestle with how it is in the body that you, you do that. We should think through those things carefully. We should think practically about that as Paul does. Fundamental to loving one another that way is showing up. It's being there. Just by being there, that love is expressed. Being involved. We love one another by growing in our faith, by bearing testimony of the grace of God at work in us, by growing in our faith, growing with the body. We give testimony of our love by our faithfulness to the Lord in the Lord's body, being faithful in the work by being someone that can be relied upon. Not someone that, like a, a reed that when you lean on them, it goes into your hand, right? But someone that you can rely upon, you can lean on by supporting work here, getting involved and in laboring with, alongside one another. Coming alongside a brother or sister in difficulty, in a project, in work, in evangelism, in prayer, coming alongside one another in the work to help with something. Words of encouragement. Words of encouragement. 
an attitude that encourages. You can demonstrate love by refraining from gossiping, refraining from grumbling, refraining from complaining, refraining from a critical spirit. You can express love by not griping or disputing. You can exercise that kind of love by building up, by edifying, by bringing a word of exhortation, by resolving conflict, by being faithful to resolve conflict, by demonstrating love for another person, by saying, I love you. I don't want there to be anything between us. By discipling someone, taking them under your wing, bringing them alongside, by being discipled, spending time with one another, by being steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Well, you can see how showing up is just, that's just getting through the door of this kind of love, amen? That's where the real work begins. By laboring to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, by a commitment to our peace and unity, that's being loving toward the body, loving toward one another, by a commitment to us, by demonstration of that commitment. These are all practical ways in which you can express love for one another as we serve the Lord Christ together. Remember, love is the heart focused upon its object with affectionate warmth or delight such that love thinks, speaks, and acts with enduring commitment and self-sacrificing devotion to one another, to another person's biblical and spiritual good. We need to pray the Lord's help that we love one another in this way, amen? Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for this word of exhortation from the Apostle Paul in your word. We, we are grateful that you have... Um, communicated your word to us in this way so that we can understand it. We're grateful for the work of your spirit that takes that word, plants it within our hearts and minds, that applies it within our hearts and minds, that we might love you and serve you by loving one another, serving one another. Uh, Strengthen us to do that. We know that that's not possible in our own strength. It's not possible in our own wisdom. We would certainly and do most certainly go astray when we do not rely upon you and upon your grace and your spirit to do these things. So we express and acknowledge our great need uh, of you in this, Lord. Please help us to love in the way that we are called to love here. And through that love, Lord, I pray that you would protect us and preserve us, that you would help us to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, that you would keep conflicts boiling over uh, within us. You would protect us from within uh, when we languish in displaying this kind of love. Help us to love in the way that we are called here to love. For the sake of your church, for the sake of your body, for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ, for the glory of your own name. Pray these things. Pray that you would help us in them in Jesus' name. Hello, and thanks for listening. My name is Mark Brashear, and I have the blessed privilege of serving with the Saints at Cornerstone Church near Orlando, Florida. We're so grateful that you've connected with us through the sermon that you've just heard. For more information, visit us at cornerstoneorlando.org. Or better yet, come and see us on the Lord's Day at 3370 Snow Hill Road in Oviedo, Florida. We're just east of Orlando and about 15 minutes from the campus at UCF. It would be a joy to have you worship with us.